1: Hi, and welcome to Outward, Slate's podcast about queer culture, politics,
2: and anything else the LGBTs are getting up to these days. I'm Brian Lauder. I edit Outward. And I'm Jules gill peterson your resident historian.
3: And I'm Christina Cotarucci, a senior writer at Slate.
1: Hi, everybody. All right. On this month's show, we're looking at the intersection of queer life and incarceration, How has America's prison-loving penal system shaped our history and present, and how does that experience get channeled, or not, into the culture we make and consume? We'll start off with the inspiration for the episode, Hugh Ryan's new book, The Women's House of Detention, A Queer History of a Forgotten Prison, which uses one infamous mid-century institution in New York's Greenwich Village to return the overlooked lives of incarcerated women and transmasculine folks to our collective story, and to make a stirring case for prison abolition as a queer issue. Then we'll discuss how prison shows up in the gay imagination today and whether we're entirely comfortable with how those fantasies look. As always, we'll have your updates to the gay agenda and a round of Pride and Provocations. But before we get to those, we have a special favor to ask. We met recently to do a little spring cleaning on the show. And one of the things we agreed that we wanted more of going forward was to hear more of your voices. So next month, we'll be introducing a new segment that'll be dedicated to you. This is a place for comments or do-betters about the previous episode, items in the news or situations in your life that you think we ought to know about, and or advice questions about queer conundrums that you want us to help answer. Really, just about anything is welcome. You just need to send us a voice memo. You can record that on your phone or your computer and send it to slate.com. As a sample of what we're gonna be looking for, we had a lovely note from Peter, a listener and gay dad, whose kids happen to go to the school where Eliza Cutler works. You'll remember that she was the Brooklyn kindergarten teacher who came on in April to tell us what LGBTQ inclusive curriculum for young kids really looks like. Let's take a listen to what Peter had to say.
4: Hi there, this is Peter in Brooklyn, a longtime listener, first time voice memo emailer. I was uh, very excited as as someone who listens to the podcast and also as a gay dad to listen to the segment you guys did on queer families in kindergarten, uh, particularly in light of the incredibly damaging legislation that we've been hearing about and that's really impacting families in Texas and in Florida and beyond. I thought it was really nice to sort of be reminded of the fact that it doesn't have to look like that and, and what the positive alternative is um, I was also particularly excited to hear from uh, that teacher because my kids actually attend uh, that school—the school where Eliza is a teacher. So that was really a treat to hear, and I hope um, encouraging for some folks to at least realize that there are positive alternatives out there. It's funny—we have been since we've had a—we have a fourth grader and a third grader, and then we have another kid who's going to be in kindergarten next year. So we've done the family study twice a number of years ago. It's a very, very sweet experience. You have like this whole carpet full of kindergartners in front of you with their clipboards, um, making notes and observations about you as if they were little anthropologists. So it's a very sweet experience. And it was also really interesting because both years I went in prepared to answer a lot of questions about two dads and and where's the mom and all of those questions. That I would have thought I'd be hearing from kindergartners who um, are hearing from a two dad household, but actually the kids like didn't have a single question about that. Um, instead, they like drilled us for twenty minutes both years about adoption, which I thought was really interesting. Particularly the first year, I think we were actually really boring as a family. Um, which at first I felt kind of bad about. But then I decided that that was like a deeply transgressive, revolutionary act of being uh, a boring family. So I think I nailed it.
3: First of all, what a lovely coincidence that somebody whose kids go to that school listens to Outward. We're everywhere. You're everywhere. This just made me so happy. You know, it's obviously wonderful and an, an extreme privilege for... Any parents' children to go to that school, but especially for a queer family to have kids be able to go to a place that you know is excited to accept their full selves—it it just warmed my little heart. So thank you, Peter.
1: Yeah, and you know you could be next. Um, so please just send us uh, any comments, reportage, epiphanies, <laughs> questions uh, even maybe a cute name for this segment. We think we have one, but, uh, we're, we're open for suggestions, uh, in this soft launch period. So even a cute name would be welcome. Um, send that in a voice memo to outward Podcast at slate.com. Now it is time for <laughs> pride and provocations. Uh, Jules, why don't you start us off?
2: Okay. I got a weird one for you all. Do you, do either of you watch selling sunset, the real estate reality show? Yeah, some the most recent season was, you know, as out of control and nonsensical as ever, actually more than ever. And you know, whatever, <laughs> I, I've watched season one, but I, I have a sort of pride question mark, because I don't even know how I'm feeling about this, about, uh, you know, one of the one of the real estate agents, Chris Shell, who during this latest season, you know, her story arc is mostly about how she's dating um, one of the twin men who owns the brokerage and then of course they they break Mm. up at the end of the semester at the the semester oh god don't be a professor (laughs) y'all they break up at the end of the season (laughs) apologies for the spoiler there i I have to say throughout the whole season i was having this weird feeling you know it's like i i enjoy the women on the show they're very high femme they're over the top a lot of them are essentially Mm -hmm. that kind of cis straight woman who you know steals from trans feminine culture to Mm -hmm. make herself look you know the the most woman possible and i'm i'm into it yeah and, you know, but i'm not usually yeah. attracted to folks like that i more just sort of find them enjoyable but something about this season chris shell i was like sam girl like she was really i don't know i just like could not take my eyes off of her and i was like something's going on something shifted i don't know what it is but my <laughs> my, my my mrs spidey sense was tingling and then at the reunion episode she revealed that she is dating a they them a non-binary oh. uh, pop artist who is apparently named G Flip. I don't, don't know their work well. <laughs> Love it. Um, but Chriselle <laughs> is appearing in one of their new music videos like in a leather dress and just looking generally hot. And I was like, I knew it. Yeah. Something queer happened Ooh. in her life and her style improved. Her attitude improved. Mm-hmm. She just seems generally happier. Aura. The aura of it, that wild that we can just sense yeah. those things? I'm telling you. Yeah. So some I feel candy. I feel proud about that. I think that's good. Like, I, mm-hmm. hope, I hope they're happy, whatever. But just, just feeling pride that, you know, some, that, that, that once again, um, someone who otherwise would have been doomed to a life of heterosexuality is enjoying better looks. Uh, and I assume better sex uh, in, a, in a queer relationship.
3: You should also just be proud of yourself for foretelling that, you know. Oh, Christina, I'm always mm-hmm. proud of myself. You should start gambling. <laughs> I have a pride this month, too. So there have been two really great magazine pieces on phalloplasty within the last five months. Uh, One was in the New York Times Magazine just uh, this month. It's by Jamie Lauren Kalis, How Ben Got His Penis. And then in December, New York Magazine ran a piece called My Penis Myself by Gabriel Mack. So um, phalloplasty, for any listeners who don't know, is a series of surgeries that create a penis colloquially known as bottom surgery uh, for transmasculine people. And the two articles take two different slants on the topic. Both, I thought, were wonderfully done. So Jamie's article, the more recent one, focuses, as the title suggests, on this trans guy, Ben, who goes through a four-year process of getting a penis that he's happy with. It tells the full history of how the procedures were developed. I was very surprised and proud to come across a quote by our very own Jules Gil-Peterson halfway through the piece, I had no idea, all of a sudden her name pops up. Uh, genius as always. <laughs> um, and Gabriel Mack's piece is, is a very deeply personal and raw and uh, highly emotional excavation of his own emotions about wanting a dick, wanting a really big dick in particular, um, and also wanting to keep his vagina. So the reason why these pieces gave me pride, I can't say I'm proud of them, I didn't write them, but I know how difficult it can be and scary it can be to unearth the, you know, full details of the queer and trans experience for a mainstream audience and mixed company. And I feel like that is one reason why there's still a little bit of a shroud of silence around phalloplasty, you know, as both Jamie and Gabriel write in their pieces, even in some trans circles, it can be, I wanna say, not in, stigmatized maybe, either because uh, you know, there's a really high risk of complications and sort of middling results with the surgery because the technologies and techniques are so new, um, or just because of the sort of gender politics involved in wanting one's identity as a man to include a penis. You know, I remember when I was coming up as a queer person, reading Original Plumbing, one of the first and most popular institutions of transmasculine media. And as Gabriel Mack points out in his piece, the magazine was named after not having a phalloplasty. And, you know, in The main doctor in Jamie's piece who started the trans surgery program at NYU has only been performing phalloplasties since 2016. So in many ways, it's still something that not a lot of people have experience with. A lot of trans people having to do self-education about it, even informing doctors about techniques that are out there and asking them and encouraging them to learn more. So it was just really exciting to see two very well-done pieces about All of the issues and history and cultural conversations around phalloplasty written by two transmasculine journalists, which, again, you know, the ability of trans journalists to tell their own stories and and other people's stories with sensitivity and nuance and and uh, sort of a full unabashed look at the truth of these situations um, just was was thrilling to me, to be perfectly honest.
1: Yeah, there's sound fantastic. I need to check. I read the first one, but the um, the most recent one. I have the tab open right now, so I'm excited. To yeah, check click over that out after, after our after, recording. After. I will. Um, what I will not be clicking over that. to you is the video of uh, North Carolina representative Madison Cawthorn's ass that I was forced to watch as part <laughs> of my job recently. If you don't know about this, Madison Cawthorn, um, it was sort of an up and coming GOP darling until somewhat recently although he still, may, he still may win his re-election, we'll see. But he, someone is trying to make him seem gay, and so there's been, like, a sort of slow leak of little tidbits. Uh, at first, there was a picture of him in uh, women's lingerie, clearly at, like a, like, a party sort of situation. Turns out he was on, like, a cruise, maybe. Then there was a video of him with a close aide, uh, in question marks, uh, um, or in a quotation marks, I should say. Is that, like, the um, roommate
3: of political speech? Yeah,
1: I think... I think that's kind of what what's what was being gestured toward. Um, putting the aide puts his hand on Madison's crotch, like in a car, and they're sort of joking around about that. And then the most recent thing uh, was this video of Madison Carthorne naked in bed, like humping the head of an undisclosed person. I don't think we know who that person is, but uh, this was leaked as well, and it was you know sort of put out there as evidence that he's not qualified to serve. But, of course, it also is part of this emerging narrative that, oh, is Madison Cawthorn mm. gay? I am provoked by having to see this, of course, but I'm also provoked by gay people's uh, buying into mm. that argument, that like wa- like sort of wanting him to be gay. Because, listen, he's almost certainly not gay. What he is is a horrible bro, and bros, as we should all know, love to play gay mm-hmm. all the time. Right, they love to do this kind of crap where they they like you know love on each other or even do things even like go to the point of like almost having sex with each other or perhaps even having sex with each mm-hmm. other. I don't mm-hmm. know, but they like they they love to sort of run right up against like that homoerotic boundary to make themselves actually look straighter. And uh, I wrote a piece about this in Slate, but there is a wonderful book uh, by um, Jane Ward. He's a scholar of sexuality and other things, um, called Not Gay, where she really digs this, digs into this phenomenon, it's sort of a very frat, military, kind of masculinist mm-hmm. culture where gayness and even gay sexual contact can be used actually to shore up straightness, right? And so, you can go read the piece to find out more about that, but this is clearly what's going on with this guy. He does not give me gay vibes at all, he gives me obnoxious bro mm-hmm. vibes. And I would like for us to stop wishing him into the community because we do not, we do not want him here. Uh, we, we do not want him here. If he turn, if he comes out later, I will issue a correction for this. But I, I really don't think it's going to happen. And I would love to not have to think about him or his ass anymore. Amen.
4: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and
5: live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BDW void or void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
0: On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things.
5: I developed an illness where it isn't safe
1: for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think
4: about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just
5: replace sex with driving.
0: Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts.
2: So last week I was in New York City and before I had to catch my train home, I went for a walk in Greenwich Village. It was a beautiful sunny day, the spring flowers were in full bloom, and the neighborhood's iconic 19th century architecture and winding streets felt cozy as ever. But something integral to the village's history is missing, something I walked right by without thinking of it. From the end of the 1920s to the early 1970s, there was a prison right in the middle of Greenwich Village. The Women's House of Detention, as it was called, was not just New York's primary carceral institution for women and transmasculine people, it was also the center of a vibrant working class queer culture. In his new book, Hugh Ryan brings us the incredible stories of the poor, Black, Puerto Rican, lesbian, and transmasculine people whose experiences being criminalized and incarcerated have in turn shaped many queer historical events of the past hundred years from which their stories have long been scrubbed. The Women's House of Detention teaches some powerful truths about prisons, that they are never reformable, that they are chronically underfunded and forgotten, and that their litany of abuses go unchecked, except for the courageous ways that incarcerated people and their communities fight back. And from the perspective of this prison built for women in the middle of a bohemian queer neighborhood, we're given in this book a bracing lesson in how incarceration is used primarily as a tool of political and social control, not protection. The justifications evolve over time as we learn, as we read, from locking up women who weren't feminine enough under suspicion of sex work, to imprisoning people for using drugs, to the political prisoners of the McCarthy era and the Lavender Scare, to the Stonewall Riots and the Black Panthers. This is a book that you need to read. Listeners, you know I'm a professional history nerd, so hear me when I say, I truly could not put this book down. And I actually feel really lucky in this moment of many political crises to read about how working class lesbians and transmasculine people have found also joy and queer life, no matter how harshly they have been locked up. We are so excited to be joined by friend of the pod, Hugh Ryan, who is the author of The Women's House of Detention, A Queer History of a Forgotten Prison, which is out now from Bold Type Books, and is available wherever you like to get your books. So, Hugh, welcome back to Outward, and thank you for taking time to talk with us about this hotly anticipated title.
5: Oh, thank you for having me. I often say, like, the best thing about writing a book is that really smart people think about it and talk to you about it. And this is, like, something I have been looking forward to for a while, so I'm really excited to talk with the three of you.
2: Well, I I think one of the most powerful points in the book, and... I think one that kind of rewrites not just conventional wisdom, but I kind of want to say maybe it comes in and, and rewires our collective gay brain, is that you you point out that queer life in the US and prison have always been actually intertwined. As in, you know, we really can't have had one without the other. And in the case of the Women's House of Detention, that's not a metaphor. The prison was quite literally built like smack in the middle of the village. And, and, and so it directly contributed to how that neighborhood has kind of become notoriously queer, um, but it was torn down, right? And so if you walk through the village today, like I did a week ago, you might not realize you're standing in the middle of this contested history of policing and imprisonment. So I, I was wondering, could you tell us a bit, you know, just to get started about what it kind of means to think about queer life as sort of being knitted to mass incarceration rather than those being kind of separate things?
5: I and mean, that was one of my big realizations in doing this work. I had, in my previous book, thought about the relationships between prisons and queerness and how queer people are often incarcerated and criminalized, but I had been thinking about it mostly from the point of view of prisons as producing knowledge and records that queer historians can use. Mm-hmm. Huh. The more I dug into it, though, the more I started to see that the experiences in prison and around prisons were shaping queer lives, particularly in the late 1800s and the early and mid-1900s and that those connections were not just about recording something, but rather producing, directing, shaping and a million unexpected ways, from the fact that many women and transmasculine people learned about our modern ideas of what it means to be gay or lesbian or trans through being incarcerated, through the court systems, and that happening in the 30s was really surprising to me, you know? That just wasn't something I expected to find. And then the way in which this prison, I mean, the moment where someone, I think it was Jay Tool, pointed out to me mm-hmm. that this prison sat at the end of Christopher Street, right? I knew it was in the village, but to actually think, oh, wait, there was a prison on Christopher Street. And to dig back further and understand that there have been prisons on Christopher Street since the 1700s mm. was a real revelation.
2: Yeah, it's incredible. It's like, again, there are no metaphors here. <laughs> but but there's something that happens when these things get torn down and we're supposed to forget about them. Um, and, and I think, you know, one of the things that's so incredible about the way that you wrote this book is that you bring to life the stories of the people who were incarcerated. And so many of them are just so memorable, you know, I'm thinking of like some of my favorites, like the working class femme fatales, um, you know, the, the many different black and brown queer women who are charting their own paths through those categories and the transmasculine people. And, and, the, and, you know, these are all people whose lives are rarely the ones that get canonized at, you know, pride kind of historical, of, you know, events, um, let alone in broader sort of, you know, U.S. historical imaginary But I think that one of the things that you sort of drive home in the book is that, you know, part of why this prison existed and why it was built in the village is because being queer, being a queer woman or being gender nonconforming or being transmasculine was what was criminalized. So the people incarcerated at the, the house of detention are examples of criminalization and not like. Criminals, the idea of the criminal. And, and I was wondering, could you help us sort of parse that difference? And, and if there is anyone whose life really stands out to you as a great example of what it means to be criminalized for like existing instead of being a criminal?
5: absolutely this was one of those things that i really learned about in doing this research the ways in which women's incarceration quote unquote women's incarceration in the u.s dates back to the 1870s and was from the very beginning a forced feminization project Mm -hmm. the first imprisonment centers for women in america say in their annual reports Our job is to retrain, reconstruct, and remold these people to make them what God intended. Wives, mothers, and the educators of children, right? This is central to the project that they see themselves as doing. So, of course, queer women, transmasculine folks are going to get caught up in this because they are, by definition, Mm. athwart what the prison wants a person assigned female at birth to be right the prison is not interested in making people good citizens it's interested in making people good women and that is a very important line i think and that sets in motion so much of what happens in american life in queer life in the 20th century one person whose story i think really encapsulates this well is actually someone that i found at first when writing my previous book when brooklyn was queer at that time i didn't find his first name but in doing this new research i found out that his name was big cliff Uh, his last name was Trondle. He was a trans man, very similar to the way we would think about a trans man today. One of the earliest examples where I feel really comfortable not saying trans masculine or but trans man. He, in writing, identifies himself as a man, writes to Woodrow Wilson, the president, when he is arrested in 1913 saying, please let me dress like this, let me live like this. And it's such an obvious example of how his very identity, his self, has been criminalized because When he's first arrested, it's because a police officer noticed him sitting in a cafe wearing a suit and smoking Hmm. and realized that he was assigned female at birth and arrested him for his clothing. The judge in this case correctly notes that there is no law in New York that criminalizes what he has done. There is a law against wearing costumes, but only if you wear a costume in order to commit another crime. So this first judge, actually lets Big Cliff off and says you didn't do anything wrong and it's a social worker who immediately has him rearrested and rearrests him on a charge of associating with idle and vicious persons (laughs) but in order to get him which is what we're right. doing right here, I was uh, about to I say. mean, that is queer life, right? <laughs> Idle and yeah. vicious persons. But in order, the rest is so that he could be brought in front of a new magistrate. And that new magistrate sentenced him to three years in a reformatory and says, the reason I'm doing this is because of how you dressed. No girl would dress like this unless she was a moral pervert, right? So we see right there... Even without a specific law being violated, even without an actual criminal statute, whether or not the statute itself is unjust, whole other question. But even without the existence of a law that has been violated, the state wanted to crack down on him for his gender identity. Mm. And that never stopped.
1: It's so interesting that how... um you write about this a lot. That social workers and uh, social workers and like psychologists and those kinds of people become um, the you know sort of you could call them the villains of the story, I guess, but also just these enforcers of these emerging ideas about the nature of gender and sexuality that, are, that are sort of happening at the beginning of the 20th century. And those ideas get kind of operationalized, I guess you could say, like in in prisons against these queer women and trans mask folks. Could you just talk a little bit more about that dynamic? Because I found it sort of fascinating and and new. Yeah,
5: I mean, I think the roles of these kind of social workers and psychologists are so complicated in a certain way. Because on an individual level, they were helping individual people and that's how they understood their work but when you look at it on a more macro level they were really as you said enforcing a lot of these rules around gender and sexuality and even if they helped certain individuals they were inside a system that was penalizing and targeting those individuals and their help sometimes was not what we today might consider help at all sometimes it was but a lot of the times they thought that what would help someone was to help them be straight or to hide their gender identity or you know go to psychological testing of these kinds of things. As an institution, I think the reason social work files became so important for my research in this early period, in the 30s and 40s, is that we're going through a sea change in what sexuality and gender identity and queerness are in America. In the 19th century, in the early part of the 20th century, before Sigmund Freud, it's very body-based, right? Your identity is linked directly to your body. Queerness as much as there's an idea of queer identity, is around gender transgression. And it kind of collapses and combines our idea of being transgender, being intersex, being gay. But the important part for this story is that it's not changeable. It is in your body. You are literally born this way. So you can be looked down on, you could be pitied, you could be studied, you could be criminalized, but you couldn't be changed, right? What happens in the early part of the 20th century, Sigmund Freud and sexologists move personality, sexuality, and gender identity out of the body and into the mind. And suddenly, it's mutable. It's disguisable. It's changeable, or so they think. Now, if you have a population that criminalizes queer women and trans men because there is this idea that they are never going to be good wives or mothers, and that that will, in fact, keep them from ever being economically self-sustaining, because what else can a woman be, right, aside from a wife or a mother? And you are trying to help those people, as these sociologists and psychologists and social workers thought they were. Well, then, of course, you're going to think, my goal is to, as much as possible, try to change these people, prevent them from becoming gay, or rescue them from homosexuality or from being trans, though they did not exactly have that language, right? These social workers suddenly understood that personality was changeable, sexuality was changeable, and it was their job to rescue save and preserve people from it in order to either keep them from being incarcerated or to help them after they had been incarcerated. So while certain individuals, and I I profile some of them in the book, actually did have much more open ideas about sexuality and gender identity than we would ever imagine in the 30s. You know, many of these people themselves were being targeted as un- properly feminine for wanting to have jobs at all. So some of them understood that, but a lot of them were really inside this framework that said their job is to rescue people from homosexuality or being transgender.
3: And yet, you know, you write about certain people who um, still feel pride and confidence Mm -hmm. in their identity as queer people. And that was really exciting to me because, I mean, as you point out in your book, this, this, Isn't necessarily the popular narrative of queer history, where you know, um, you know, pre Stonewall, pre Mattachine society, people really had a strong sense of self and a feeling that even if they were quote unquote abnormal, as they sometimes describe themselves, there was nothing wrong with that. How did you sort of reconcile or fit that that mode of like nascent pride within this more mainstream idea of queer history that we're often taught?
5: It suddenly made so many things make so much more sense, because mm. I realized that I had actually been mm. watching this shadow history all along. That if you look at, say, the biography of early uh, queer organizers like uh, Frank Kameny or yeah. um, Barbara right. Giddings or these kind of folks, they say over and over again, first I found the bars, and I found mm. community there, and then from that experience I realized I wasn't alone, I wasn't a freak, I was mm. normal, I you know, should be treated like a real citizen. They then had the power to get their stories preserved, they had the right skin color, they had the right gender (laughs) presentation, they came from money, they had degrees, they became famous, they led court cases... But what they learned, they learned in the bars from people who we do not have the stories of, right? We just didn't have their names. We didn't have a way to recognize them on an equal par. And so when I started to see all of these people who, before the Daughters of Bledis, before the Mattachine Society, are pushing back against social workers and guards in prison and saying... I should be allowed to do whatever I want. If it makes me happy, there is no reason anyone should incarcerate me or try to change me. And this comes from butches, femmes, white, black, unknown racially i mean that's a large part of this story too Mm. is there's so much passing going on on race and sexuality Mm. that suddenly i began to see how all of this makes so much sense and then truly it was talking to the artist and activist and writer and filmmaker and genius tourmaline Mm. and reading some of her Mm. work that tied a lot of this together for me because she talks a lot about the idea of freedom dreaming you know this black radical liberationist tradition that says Communally, Mm. we can imagine life beyond what this is, because when we're alone, it's impossible to say, am I wrong, am I awful, Uh, does anyone share my Mm. point of view? And together, Mm. we can dream our way out of this, but that is a communal action. So these folks that I'm looking at and recognizing, they aren't there to replace a Frank Kameny or a Barbara Giddings, they're there to say, together, we are able to do this in a way that we cannot do it alone. That's so
2: powerful. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I, I really mm-hmm. just, I was really moved by how important, yeah, a, a black radical and black left tradition is in the book, right? and And I think one of the rewards is, is that this book covers such a long period of time. And, and and it's, of course, it can do that because like this prison is sitting there this whole time, almost like bearing witness to a century that we think we maybe know. I mean, in, in the conclusion, you write that, you know, well, Greenwich Village is sort of like one of the most written about, if not the most written about mm-hmm. neighborhood, queer neighborhood maybe in the world, right. other than like, you know, the Tenderloin in San Francisco or the Castro. <laughs> But in fact, there's so much we didn't know about it. And, and some of it has to do with how we tell the story. And so I think one of the rewards for the book is, you know, you, you see the foundations and you go through this incredible 1930s moment that I wish more people would know about. Like, it just was a high point for being gay in America. Yeah. And, then, and then we hit the real devastation of the mid-century and the extreme homophobia and misogyny and you know the Red Scare and the Lavender Scare because those were retrenchments. But then we get to terrain that mm-hmm. we you know hear about all the time, the 60s and the 70s, the era of liberation activism. And one thing I really appreciate is that you tell the story of Stonewall in two ways that I think are really important um, and somewhat <laughs> different than how we often hear it. And first, you put the Women's House of Detention back in the story because, oh, my God, it's literally 500 feet away from the Stonewall Inn. It's like that you could, the people who were locked up because the cells were on the outside of the building could watch. They were watching. They were chanting. They participated in the riot while they were locked up. And then, and then yeah. And, things, and then secondly, yeah. you tell this as a broader story about the black laugh. Um, In particular, because really prominent black radicals like Afeni Shakur and Angela Davis have their own stints in the Women's House of Detention during this moment or around this time. And and so you really get to dig in through them into the interface between gay liberation and the Black Panthers, which is something that, you know, I often hear invoked. But to actually Mm -hmm. sit with that and and think about the prison Mm -hmm. as the relay point, I mean you know, maybe tell us a little bit about that. And and if you'd like to sort of, you know, take us there. I mean, what difference do you think it makes to see the birth of gay liberation as intimately tied to the Black Panthers and the Black left through the lens of the prison? Because I just don't think that's how the story of Stonewall and gay lib gets talked Mm -hmm. about. And it just, like I was reading the way you put it all together, and I was like, oh, oh, hello, history feels available in a new way. So so tell us a little more about that.
5: Yeah, you know, I think that we have narrowed down the framework of LGBTQ history so dramatically, uh, particularly around Stonewall, right? That we only want to talk about who was in the bar the first night at the moment it was raided, and we have to fight over that 30 minutes of territory as though that is the most important... Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like that's yeah. not the story, yeah. right? That's the moment of action that is beautiful on screen, right? We can see that. But right. the story cinematic. Yeah, totally yeah. cinematic. It makes a narrative, right? But the story mm-hmm. is that all of these people, communally, were having experiences that allowed them to build community and to resist, and that we see this resistance over and over again, not just at the Stonewall Riot, but, you know, months later, there's an International Women's Day Riot outside the House of D mm. that queer people are involved in. There's a major riot in the village in August of 1970 called the Haven Riot that goes on for days when queer people are raided in a bar yet again. There are other riots that happen outside of Stonewall, the Compton's Cafeteria riots, donuts, You know, there's all of this happening. And to suddenly be able to look at it from the point of view not of who was in the bar during these important 20 minutes that founded all of modern gay history, Mm. (laughs) and to instead start to ask the question, of who made the event a multi-day event, who carried it forward, who continued it, and why, why did it stick in a way here and now when it didn't at other times? And to be able to see the way in which the Gay Liberation Front specifically gets founded because there is a meeting after Stonewall to sort of harness this energy. Madison Society leaders are like, we want to keep this going. And the young radicals who come in are all involved with the left already. They are involved with the Black Panthers. They are protesting the Vietnam War. They are part of Red Stockings, the feminist group. They are part of all of these other organizations and they wanna protest the prison. Mm. That is the reason Mm -hmm. they come to this meeting. And when the Mattachine Society says, no, we don't wanna do anything that would piss off the cops, they immediately leave and form an organization called the Gay Liberation Front in order to protest the prison in support of the Black Panther members who are Mm -hmm. in it, both of whom are queer women. Afini Shakur and Joan Bird. We don't remember this part of this story. It rarely gets talked (laughs) about, and they even rarely had the chance to talk about it publicly. It almost does not show up at all in Afini Shakur's uh, autobiography, but they were foundational to why this moment took hold and how these movements connected. Afini Shakur worked closely with the Gay Liberation Front to knit together the Black Panthers and GLF. When I was growing up in the 90s, you know, in college, I learned about Huey P. Newton's letter yeah. to the Black Panthers in support of Women's Lib and Gay Lib. But it was taught as a standalone document, yeah. and it didn't really make sense in any mm. way. There was never an investigation of why he felt this way, where his thoughts were coming from, how they were connected to a broader picture. He was presented as this sort of weird outlier, and to see the way in which Black women in leadership in the Black Panthers over and over again identified with queer people, were queer, had queer experiences through the prison. I mean, Afini Shakur says very specifically, while being incarcerated, during the Stonewall riots, because she was in the prison while Stonewall happened, she saw gay liberation banners out front and began to think about how gay liberation and Black liberation were connected. Mm -hmm. And then she met her girlfriend there, Carol Crooks, Mm -hmm. and they knitted it together even further, right? The prison is so central to these stories and to why Greenwich Village is what it is and why gay Liberation is what it was. And yet, it got separated out, you know? And, and you mentioned this earlier, Jules, and I think this is an important point. The triumph of mid-century homophobia was to tell us that there was nothing before it, right? That we have nothing, mm-hmm. we are nothing, and if we did have something, it was pathetic, dirty, and disgusting. And sad. Sad, mm-hmm. right? The lonely life. But that is still the same trick that mass incarceration is playing. When we remove prisons and people who have been incarcerated from our society, physically remove them, like take the House of D and move it to Rikers, but also spiritually and emotionally remove incarcerated people by never telling their stories, never asking them what should be done about the prison system, by banning them from certain kinds of licenses, by letting them not vote All of these things are what enable mass incarceration because if we saw it and we had to reckon with it and hear what it did, I don't think we could let it stand in that same way. And that's a trick that homophobia Mm. and mass incarceration both play on us.
2: It really is one of the galvanizing feelings of this book and why I think it's so important Mm -hmm. to tell a story of prison from the experiences of the people who were locked up because I think. You know yeah. and and this is why I just cannot encourage people to go out and read this enough because if you you sit and listen and understand what was done to these people over and over and over, right? Big Cliff was arrested something like you know twenty times in thirty years mm-hmm. or you know something like that. and you know, unfortunately ends up murdered. I mean people that pay pay the ultimate prices, I mean there's just you there's nothing left it it reveals exactly as you're saying, what mass incarceration is and how it colludes and amplifies things like homophobia, transphobia, and racism, and how it hides them from Mm -hmm. the so-called goings-on of, you know, everyday life. And there's something so powerful, right? And it it makes for this really strange feeling at the end of the book, right, as the, the women's house of detention is being torn down. And, of course, it was a horrific institution. It was always overcrowded. It was always abusive. It was always doing the worst, which was what it was mm-hmm. designed to do. But then it gets taken away. And today, most jails and prisons are either so inconspicuous you won't even notice them. There still are plenty in major cities, but you won't really see them because they're not designed to be visible and you certainly can't you know, yell and have conversations with people who are locked up. Mm. And then prisons are deliberately kept very far away you know, in rural settings for all sorts of political, economic, and social reasons. And there's something right. really bittersweet and difficult about then kind of like, you know, this moment at the end of the book where where this particular prison is torn down and a private garden replaces it because that's what you mm-hmm. know the rich yeah. real estate uh, interests of Greenwich Village want. But I, I guess I, I guess maybe, you know, what's your sense of how to deal with this kind of bittersweet taste? I mean, I think, you know, one thing that I certainly feel having read the book is that sitting with these people's stories, the real people who are, you know, behind, in and out of, you know, these incarceral incar- settings lights up the reality just so incredibly. But, um, but you know, mm-hmm. it seems like part of what you're you're helping us do is understand that, like, as queer people, we have this kind of historical consciousness about police and prison that, like, is ours. Mm-hmm. Because it, it, it's, mm-hmm. like, actually our... Tradition and we have this sort of way to this ability to see through the bullshit of American society that hides this extreme form of of human rights abuses. You know, every single day that we're all, you know, a part of in one way or another. Um, but that hit certain people harder than others. So I, I don't know, there's just something I'm really still hung up on this idea of the prison yeah. being torn down, which is like a nice moment, but that that just means another awful one was built that was harder to get to. I mean, ha, where are you sort of sitting with that kind of, you know, difficult feeling at this point, have you know, having written the whole thing?
5: I think bittersweet is the right word. Uh, and I, I'll pull it apart. The bitter mm-hmm. side, right? What you said, when this prison gets torn down, it doesn't improve things, right? It just hides them and it makes them bigger. That's always the truth of prison reform. The one reform that gets pushed through is more cages, more money for cages. Prisons just grow and grow and grow. This is why I don't think reform really works at all.
1: I'm just going to add, I mean, it's why we're right now looking at Rikers in New York needing to possibly be taken over by the federal government because it is like, it, it is a, um, such a mess, so mismanaged, so horrible, that it actually is going to possibly be taken away from the state uh, to be to be fixed, but it won't be fixed, is, is your point. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I, I
5: think this is something that just is common sense, right? If you take a group of people who you do not think are worth anything and who are actively bad to society, and then you hide them away in a place where no one can see what you do to them, and then you don't support that place, like, what do you think is going to happen? There is never a way in which prisons mm-hmm. are going to be good in that sense. It just it is fundamentally impossible. That's the bitter. The, the seeing it torn down, despite it being awful, to see the ways in which now, you know, folks who want to visit their incarcerated uh, loved ones or family have to take two subways and a, a ferry and, all, and it gets so much harder and that's the bitter. Yeah. The sweet that came from this research for me was starting to understand abolition as a framework that wasn't just about prisons and wasn't just about police, though it was about all of those mm. things, but was actually about a more fundamental question. What is the nature of justice and what is the nature of harm? And this is what I got, you know, looking at this history brought me to naively understand some of this, but really reading folks like Mariam Kaba, Angela Davis, Ruth Whistlin-Gilmore, Joey Magel, Kate Whitlock, I mean, these really brilliant minds who have been thinking about these issues really brought home to me that abolition is for me the other half of a useful queer politics. because. Abolition asks who has been harmed and who has been cared for and where does the state influence those decisions. It's not about crime necessarily because crime can be sometimes a totally illegitimate thing that you can be arrested for or you can do something that is awful to people and not be arrested for it. We see this all the time. Mm-hmm. Businesses mm-hmm. do this all the time. They get away with things that you were like, how can you dump toxic waste into the wastewater and then no one actually punish you for it? So this idea of harm became really important to me when I finished this book because I started to think about how the opposite of that, care is something that connects so many parts of the queer agenda, right? Mm. I'm not that Mm -hmm. interested in protecting gay identity uh, per se in front of the law. Of course, I want equality, right? I want marriage equality. I want gay people to get married the same way that straight people should. But I actually think that marriage as an institution is not one that our state has that much interest in supporting. The state cares that we are cared for, right? Mm. Because if no one cares for you, you end up on the street, you end up in a hospital, you end up in an asylum, in foster care, all these places where the state has to care for you. If instead we have a movement that prioritizes care, I mean, what is it that kids kicked out by their parents need? Care. What is it that queer elders who do not have descendants need? Care. What do queer refugees Mm -hmm. need? Care. Mm -hmm. What is gender transition services that are safe and well-funded? Care. What does the AIDS crisis show the government's lack of? Care. (laughs) Abolition brings us to these questions of who is harmed and who is cared for. And I think the queer movement can use that as a way to understand what we are doing in a radical sense and in one that brings us to those moments of interconnectedness that the prison showed us in 1969, right? That knit back together the queer movement, writ large, the black liberationist movement, writ large, the Latinx movement, writ large, all of these, the feminist movement, care is the place where we can come together. And that's the suite that studying this history brought to me.
3: Mm. Hugh, the, the most interesting structural thing about your book to me is that you use the House of D as a jumping-off point and sort of a lens through which to view so many other moments in queer history. And the two that stood out to me uh, as, as particularly resonant with our current moment were the, the ones that show us the construction of homophobia. So... The World Wars, where people sort of enter and come back from the military and and get ideas through the military about what queer people, how queer people should and shouldn't be treated, and then the Red Scare and the Lavender Scare, where it becomes you know important again for people to maintain a certain you know veneer of heterosexuality in their public lives. But these have ripple effects, even for people who you know weren't in the military or or weren't privileged enough to have government jobs. I wonder if you have any thoughts about how how we're seeing sort of reflections of those moments right now with this current wave of legislation against trans and queer people and and the resurgent Mm. homophobia that that's generating.
5: Absolutely. I mean, I think we're in a moment that is very similar to me in certain ways to what was happening at the end of the 19th century. I think we are seeing a change in our understanding of what sexuality and gender identity are. I think at the end of the 19th century, that's driven by urbanization, which allows queer people to find each other and connect on different axes of our identities and form concepts about what an identity is and now the internet has been allowing us to do that again Mm -hmm. but in new and different ways and I think what we're seeing is this resistance to all of that this pushback these attacks on trans identity in particular I mean attacks on gay identity in general too but the way in which the right-wing and particularly I think Christian nationalists are so laser focused on controlling the bodies of queer and trans people particularly youth that again And again, is the axis this comes down on, right? This idea of the imagined child who must be protected, Mm -hmm. who is never queer, who is never trans, Mm -hmm. right? The imagined child we are out to protect is always a white, straight, cis child who must be protected to become white, straight, and cis. Mm -hmm. Because while you can't be changed, you also must be protected at all times, or at any moment you might fall (laughs) off the narrow beam of perfection.
1: Right, because you might...
5: He might be changed. Yeah, yeah. and it just—it's yeah. such a ripple of those moments happening again right now. Uh, and I think that one of the things the '60s really showed me, going back again to that Stonewall moment, is that power is in coalition. Right, that that intersectional resistance mm. is the only way that we actually get anything done going to return to Jay Tool, the activist who was incarcerated who spoke to me who leads tours of the West Village. What she said to me was what mattered about Stonewall is that every fucking kind of person was there and that that yeah. is what we need. We need a movement that sees all of these things as interconnected, that sees the attacks on queer youth in Florida or Texas, as directly connected to the attacks on the 1619 Project and the attacks on critical Mm -hmm. race theory in schools. All of these, again, are about this imagined white child that is straight, that is so much of what 1960s and 70s Anita Bryant-style homophobia, Mm -hmm. these groomer attacks, right, that are not just about grooming someone for pedophilia, but, you know, teaching white children to hate themselves. Again and again and again. The enemy uses the same moment to provoke all of us and uses the same institutions like the prison to control all of us. I mean, today, 40% of people in prisons for women identify as LGBTQ. 40% of youth in youth detention centers identify as LGBTQ. There is a crisis of incarceration that has never stopped happening. We've just stopped talking about it and seeing the connections it brings us to other movements. So I caught you being interviewed on all of it on
1: um, a WNYC show earlier this week, and they invited uh, people in the city to call in with memories of the, the House of D... And it was interesting that I think just about every call you received was someone sort of fondly remembering uh, going there to watch the girls like talk to each other. It was a sort of this like slumming entertainment phenomenon that you write about in the book, but that that a number of uh, citizens still in the city like remember and thought of as sort of a fun thing. And when they were narrating this to you, they didn't really even change the tone. Mm -hmm. It it still sort of came off as like a fond memory. Um, And I was sort of struck by the strangeness of that. But I wonder I wonder how you felt about that first as someone writing this, but also how you wish we would remember mm-hmm. the House of D, how, how, how maybe that tone could be changed a little bit. Yeah,
5: it's interesting because, of course, the use of incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people as entertainment is terrible. Yeah. The ways in which uh, courts have been used as tourism from the teens up mm-hmm. to today is negative overall terrible thing it is it is taking some of the most difficult private moments of someone's life and putting them on display non-consensually for the entertainment of the rich however the other thing that i think is really important to note here is that when those folks do have those memories and they do think of the house of d as a part of their world the neighborhood of Mm. Greenwich Village becomes something we are co-creating, right? They are part of it. Yes, they are controlled in a certain way that other people are not, but they were recognized as creating the tenor and the vibe. And I think so much of when we think about gay neighborhoods, we think about who owns the land and puts a rainbow flag in their window, or who owns the bar. (laughs) But queer public Mm. life is mostly done by folks who don't have access to other kinds of private space. So working class queer folks, young queer folks, queer people of color. These are the people who give gayborhoods their feel, their energy, and we've known that for decades. And this is true, not just in New York City, this is all around the world, right? You have a place where some queer people are able to own land and create institutions, and that serves as a space to bring all of these other people in. And we need to recognize those people as having a stake, a role, a creative element to our world not just as interlopers which Mm -hmm. is I think unfortunately how the prison is now remembered as these people who were inflicted on this space You go back to the 19-teens and 20s, though, when there were other detention institutions there, and people understood them as co-creating space, as folks who were part of their world, as part of their community. And as hard as I think as it will be to grapple with that, I think part of deconstructing mass incarceration is going to be saying, these are not problems to be solved, these are people to be helped. Mm. And that's a difficult Mm. ask for all of us. It means investigating our own responses, who we share space with, who we keep out, it's going to be hard. And I think we can see that in the way that it's already remembered, though. That there is an element of it that is exploitative and is looking at them for entertainment, and there is an element that says, they were part of my city. They made this Mm -hmm. space what it Mm -hmm. was, and now that's been forgotten. But it is so integral to my experience that every caller, like you said, brought it up.
2: One of the incredible gifts that you were able to wield in the book is that each of these people whose stories you tell show up, you know, a little more alive in historical memory and plucky and ready as ever to, to think with us and to be with us and to co-create with us. And so The Women's House of Detention, A Queer History of a Forgotten Prison is out now. But Hugh, truly, thank you for, for this incredible book. And thank you for taking the time to talk with us today.
5: Oh, well, this was a delightful conversation. Thanks, y'all, for thinking about it. It was really fun.
0: But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to Slate.com slash Amicus Live for tickets.
3: All right. So as I was reading all these incredibly vivid stories in Hugh's book about the real lives of lesbians and trans people in the House of D., I got to thinking about the way we get most of our ideas about queer life in prison, which is not through meticulous hue style research, it's through pop culture. And actually, there are a lot of depictions in TV and movies of incarcerated gay people, in part because when you're making a show about prisons, which are segregated by gender, if you want to have a love story or a sex story, it's probably going to be gay. I have always felt a little unsettled by my reaction to most of the queer prison narratives I've seen, even the good ones, because a lot of times I have found they sort of teeter on this thin line between torture porn and actual porn or even idealizing prison, especially women's prisons, as you know, a queer paradise, this women-only playground where everyone's hot and gay and wearing matching outfits and having sex with each other all the time. Obviously, what I'm talking about here is Orange is the New Black, <laughs> and I want to talk about that show. But first, as a sort of a fun little surprise for you guys, I want to play for you a clip from a movie that I watched this week. It's called Chained Heat 2. It's oh, a sequel, as the title suggests. Uh, it came out in 1993 uh, as a sequel to Chained Heat 1, <laughs> 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 a movie from the, the 80s. Chaining. Yeah, the chain name. <laughs> and this is where, in, in my brief research about the history of the lesbian prison genre in the past week, This is the tone of a lot of the women in prison and queer in prison genre that came before what we know today. So just to set up this scene for you guys, a young American white woman (laughs) who had drugs slipped into her bag as she was boarding a plane. No, just kidding. While she was on a bus is sent to a Czechoslovakian prison entirely populated by other young, hot, white women. (laughs) Their prison uniform consists of white panties. And this, the extraordinarily sexy and tall prison warden, who's a butch wearing a suit, is inspecting her as she arrives at the prison. This is not a porn, by the way. This is just a movie. Okay, here we go.
4: Such soft skin. So
2: smooth. Are you fine You don't have to be. We're all friends here. Aren't we, Rosa? Good friends. And we
5: like pretty things like you.
3: So... This was the origin point for the, the lesbian in prison genre as we know it today. Mm. Lesbians in prison, which, as we learned from Hugh, are make up you know, 30 to 40 percent of the prison population in real life and actually are quite well represented in shows and films about women in prison today, were usually scary, extracted sex from people by way of intimidation, you know, the, the character through which we enter the narrative is usually straight and victimized by these people or threatened by them. So that's, that's the starting point. I'm excited to tell you about my analysis of that film and more contemporary narratives of women in prison like Orange is the New Black. But first, I want to hear from you two. What have you seen? And what have you taken away from the pop culture representations of queer life in prison?
2: I mean, I love those kinds of narratives that I, like, I feel like I've feel like i seen that movie, even though I can't confirm whether or not I have. <laughs> um, I, I guess I, I felt a sort of way about it in general. And then I read Hugh's book, and now I feel more ambivalent, which is like, huh. you know, I've, I've sort mm-hmm. of long felt like, well, you know, okay, fine. The trope of lesbians or, or, or becoming gay in prison is obviously like homophobic, but it's also like f- an ideological prop for mass incarceration, because it's always like, well, you know, bad people go to prison and then they become gay because being gay is bad, but that's kind of hot. And it's like, yeah, you know, I'm not like a huge fan of those kinds of cultural tropes that are, you know, they kind of let let you have a little saucy moment, but like actually the point of it is that like you wouldn't really want that to happen. And like, you know, that's silly. But then on the other hand, you know, now after reading his book, I'm like, right. But, you know, as queer people, prison is actually like a really important social communal space um, that produces yeah. a lot of the culture that we have and you know why shouldn't that be a part of pop culture as well and, and maybe there are you know obviously better narrative tropes to tell um, but you know I, yeah I have to say like you know I, I personally I've never found like kind of like whether it's porn or TV or, um, or film I've never found like sort of prison scenarios like titillating in any particular way Um, Because I've never really bought into the idea that, like, you'll never believe what could happen. Because I've always felt like, no, I, like, super believe that, like, (laughs) anyone I know could be arrested and go to jail at any time. And, like, that's not, like, very sexy to me. Um, But then, like, also as a trans person who doesn't fit into the gender segregated prison system, I've always felt like, oh, Mm -hmm. gosh. Like, I mean, I know trans people, you know, who have been inside and who have come back out and told their stories that it's just like so horrifying i've always been like i don't want to think about it too much but the the sort of part of me that used to feel like it's just such a it's such a bad topic to cover you know pop culturally i i feel like that has softened a little and i'm kind of curious about like not like what would good representation look like because i'm not really invested in that but just like what would it what actually would like queer prison stories like Actually, look like, and I kind of fell off the the orange is the new black bandwagon at a certain point because I I just didn't like love yeah. the show that much. Um, but part of part of why I think was that I kept feeling like the show is being presented to me as if like finally finally it's solving all those problems and i was like no it's not (laughs) no i don't it seemed like a very conventional story to me of like a straight person going to prison and being like learning about queer stuff and then being like but but the but the takeaway was like it's okay to be Mm -hmm. gay and trans and i was like yeah but i already knew that honey you know like Mm -hmm. i need tv to tell me that even though like you know i might want to watch a, a sexy Russian Kate Mulgrew, you know, being tough mm. as hell as a, you know, child that grew up with Star Trek Voyager. So thank you. Thank you, Captain. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I guess that's sort of where I start.
3: The main character in Orange is the New Black, just to correct, was by when Oops. she entered okay. jail. Okay, and excuse me. In fact, me. her girlfriend is the one who got her in trouble in the first oh, place. Oh, right. So I read a really interesting chapter in a book called feminist perspectives on orange is the new black because i i i too sort of uh i watched the first couple seasons and then it just i hated watching people be tortured all the time and abused um the chapter i read was written by kyra hunting a media studies Mm -hmm. professor at the university of kentucky and she makes the point that orange is the new black departed from sort of the traditional uh, women in prison narrative in two -hmm. major ways. One was by having a queer character at the center of it. Mm -hmm. Um, The other one is by showing queer people on the show, the lesbians in prison, not one of them forced someone to have sex with her through coercion or violence. It's a low bar, but I didn't fully grasp this until I started reading some of these analyses. But women-in-prison movies were some of the first and most involved depictions of lesbian characters ever because you sort of couldn't get around having a women-in-prison story without having lesbians in it. And so Orange is the New Black, what... Kyra writes in this chapter is it sort of merged the women in prison genre with what she calls the lesbian family program, like the hmm. L word, which I think she's using family to mean like queer family, chosen family, okay. certainly the L word is not a family program. <laughs> but, um, you know, what the sort of hallmarks of that genre are having queer people at the center of the show, showing a wide variety of queer people, showing consensual sex that is fulfilling. Actually, the experience of watching Orange is the New Black, those good parts of it didn't sit well because it felt to me like, why am I feeling like this prison isn't that bad for these people, even as in the very next scene I'm watching them be tortured? And granted, you know, the, the prison experience is complicated for people. I think, as you mentioned, Jules, and as Hugh mentioned, you know, some people did and do find community there, find themselves there. It still felt... The times that I was sort of excited or titillated by that show, I I couldn't fully embrace and I always ended up having sort of a bad taste in my mouth about it because it was in a place that was built on harming these people. Brian, what have you seen?
1: My reaction to Orange and the Black is pretty similar to y'all's. I mean, I, I love to see Captain Jane way back on screen, but that was maybe the only thing that I liked about it. I also think my reaction is, is sort of due and in, to this sort of question generally is coming from maybe a gay male perspective is due to like one of the earliest homophobic jokes or sort of um, taunts that I ever heard was like, don't drop the soap, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which is a a prison a prison gay prison joke that like if you go to prison and bend over you'll get raped. I don't know where I heard that exactly, but certainly as like a kid, it I, I heard it and it you know it was in pop culture as well. I'm sure, um, back in the '90s certainly, and so I've always felt pretty uncomfortable around the eroticizing that can happen. and I think when you asked us this question about where, where have I seen it in culture, I mean honestly porn is the first thing that mm-hmm. came to mind. Gay porn that involves prisons is super common. Um, you know but anywhere where like masculinity is kind of a threat mm. is, is common. Yeah. it becomes eroticized as a way of taking power back, right So locker rooms, auto body shops, military barracks, like all, all of those places that are like grounds for homophobic attack. Uh, become kind of transformed into like grounds for homophobic sex. It's like the a, a classic gay porn move, and I've I've just never been a big fan of those scenes. Honestly, they've always made me feel a little a little weird. And it's interesting that we've gotten to this topic now because there is a major uh, release out from one of the major gay porn studios called uh, Raging Stallion called Ride or Die, which is a nine part like. Prestige, all the top talent, like everybody working in porn right now, is in this, and it is a prison wow. narrative. It is about the wow. the warden of this prison runs a gay sex ring out of it, sending prisoners out to have sex with important. That's actually people. the exact
3: plot of Chain Heat Two, by the way. <laughs> I
1: wondered when you were talking about it, it; sounded like that. um There is absolutely forced sex in this rape. I couldn't like figure it all out because it's like porn writing, so who knows what's going on? But like ultimately that is that is what's happening there's a, there's an evil warden who is running a sex ring out of the prison and the governor is somehow also involved but it it was striking to me that in 2022 a major studio would go hard so to speak like into this genre this like specific subgenre because it feels increasingly like clear that it should be uncomfortable to us and not something that that is sort of hot or like to make to make jokes about um, but instead it's been, it's been made into this, like, really, I mean, they think this is like the future of porn. Like when you look um, at the, like the promotional ma- hmm. materials about it and there's like merchandise and t-shirts and like all kinds of stuff around this. So, um, it's interesting to see the place that that, that that particular trope is still taking in at least the gay male imagination.
3: Yeah. I was trying to nail down the difference between the way queer life and queer sex is depicted in men's prisons versus women's prisons. And I feel like the common thread and the way it's often depicted in men's prisons, whether it's in porn or not is often around power rape yeah. and people who aren't gay sort of being forced into gay sex or having mm-hmm. gay sex out of necessity. And in women's prisons, it's often I mean, in the past, it's been very much through the heterosexual male gaze, like, isn't it hot to watch these women, like, forced into submission? And then more recently, it's been, like, in Orange is the New Black, and actually there's been a couple other um, series in other countries, it's been a little bit more utopian, like, women having sex without men around, and, you know, women supporting each other in this really beautiful environment, and, you know, there is the element of Coercion in terms of when prison guards are sort of raping people, which is one reason why I don't love watching these shows. But it's a lot more, you know, what can we create between women without men around? It's almost like instead of creating a situation outside of prison, where women could just be around other women, or like queer communities created with women at the center, people find it easier to just write that into a prison drama, because, you know, well, there's no men around anyway. So we don't have to sort of explain to you why we're not including men in this film.
2: Yeah, and I guess I kind of wonder if part of what is so challenging here is that like, you know, we're talking about a kind of fantasy and narrative and fiction in a place where our culture tries to process an uncomfortable truth. And it's not just about like inaccuracy to me, although it is about that, right? Like, of course, the way that like, queerness in men's and women's prisons function is really interesting and really complicated. And I think a lot of people would be pleasantly shocked and just sort of, it raises a lot of questions, right? Like, you know, the, the fairy wings in men's prisons historically have been some of the most important sites um, you know, for for creating queer culture, right? Like some people attribute, you know, the the black and brown ballroom scene in some in some facets to some of you know prison cultural, um, you know, masquerade balls. People had balls. People had marriage systems. People had you know all these sorts of complicated things that we would perhaps you know we as in collectively you know would like to imagine weren't invented under duress or weren't invented in situations of incarceration and I feel like part of what these shows tap into but sort of like buck the real interesting implications are is that like we would like to think that like you know well sexuality is this like zone of personal desire and relationship making that isn't about disciplinary violence or institutional harm when actually the history of sexuality says like mm, honey I'm not so sure about that uh, we've, we we seem to put these things together all the time right and so that's on the one hand why it's erotic to sort of pair you know oh my god yeah. sex and power well those have never gone together before right um, but, but on the other hand I really think it is a sort of site for a lot of anxieties that we have that we would like to think that locking men or women up together assuming that they're all men and women in the first place and and them turning gay is like somehow exceptional and weird and unusual when in reality like our society is rife with institutional harm and people also find Right. I mean, that's the the challenge, right, is like narrative versus what it's talking about is like, yeah. you know, the violent version yeah, yeah. of like men's prison to me is like silly in that it implies that like violence and sex don't go together. Otherwise, and the utopian version of like the women's prison to me is also silly because not just because it depoliticizes the context, but on the other hand, it's like, well... Yeah, like it is uncomfortable for us to think about how like people who have had all of their civil rights and humanity taken away actually like live really complicated, amazing, important, like meaningful lives, yeah. because you can't lock up people, you cannot yeah. deprive people of their personhood, it is not possible. No one is nothing is powerful enough to destroy that, right? You can destroy people's livelihoods, you can destroy their bodies, you can take their lives, which you cannot take away their their spark and 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 you know it's like of course pop culture is maybe not the greatest forum in which to like deal with that complicated truth but but it's where we park a lot of that energy and and i think like something about it that this is maybe slightly tangential but like i think a lot too about what that means for like actors writers performers and then of course consumers audience members many years ago i i was in brooklyn and I used to get my hair cut by um, a trans woman who was a bit older than me and who was, you know, sort of, I would sit in the chair and she would cut my hair very gingerly. This is before I transitioned and just like, you know, drop information probably that I didn't know that I needed. But anyways, one day we Mm. were talking about what I was binging at the time, a very um, guilty pleasure, Law and Order SVU, because, you know, Detective Benson is my daddy. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. sure. and I was like, you know, it's such a stupid show. I can't believe I like love watching this like awful show. That's just like all the worst ideas ever. And And she was talking about how like she and many other kind of these like brilliant, this brilliant cohort of trans women, they were all poets, writers, performance artists, just like, absolutely outrageously smart some of the best cultural producers ever who never got their due what they did to make ends meet and sometimes involved for example being extras on law and order svu and she yeah. was like oh yeah you know when you get to mm. season three episode da-da-da you'll see I'm I'm a dead I'm a dead hooker <laughs> I'm a dead tranny oh, hooker yeah, right yeah, and she was like yeah, oh all the girls yeah. have been dead tranny hookers on SVU <sighs> right and I was like Uh-oh. right you know oh, and there's wow. like there's even there, it's like, I'm not, I'm not even interested in, like, endorsing or condemning that, like, it's just a fact, right? And I'm interested in how, like, sometimes as queer and trans people, like, we do these jobs, because that's Mm -hmm. the cultural role that we can, like, get to, like, I don't know. It's just, like, it's a weird thing, because now when I watch, you know, SVU, and if I go back and watch those episodes, like, I watch them differently. I'm like, oh, my God, that's my friend who's the dead <laughs> trans woman. Woo-hoo! Like, you know, it's like, I'm not, it's not, like, reinforcing any, like, like, it's not screwing yeah. me up to watch that. Like, I get it, you know? But there's this sort of way in which, like, because queer people have been incarcerated and have been over police, like... We actually like, like, yeah, like that's not where I want things to end. I want people to like, you know, I would be much more interested. I wish all that whole cohort of women have been given, you know, the writer's room on SVU or ended SVU and been given a writer's room on any other number of shows they wanted to work on, of course. But, you know, sort of like when we're in this moment, right? And we're seeing how kind of pop culture plays out some of these struggles. There's this sort of anxiety, what our kind of mass psychological self thinks. But then there's also just like the people who are in the culture industry, right? Like like all these porn performers who are like you know acting in this nine part epic series. It's like I, I don't know. It's right. like something really interesting to me about that, um, and about what has and hasn't changed over time, right? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. gay gay porn performers in the '70s are you know doing these like prison movies and like here they are still doing these prison movies and like i I don't know i don't really know what that means to me but but it just really stands out to me as like that's a little culturally static um not because it's like bad representation per se but just actually like as like the kinds of jobs that talented people are able to do that still seems really basic
3: well i mean i think about yeah. Laverne Cox in Orange is the New Black where like that was the role that made her famous. At, yeah. You know, she played a trans woman in this women's prison, which in itself was just like, wow, what an amazing prison, you know? I they know. The it's trans so unrealistic. Woman in the women's prison. But that was a, a big role for her, a complicated role for her. And I feel like that was maybe one step up from the dead trans hooker. But like, She made the most of it, and I think it was credited as being sort of one of the first major uh, trans roles, both trans characters and role for a trans actor in a prestige series. Okay, that is all the time we have for this segment. Listeners, I would love to know what y'all think about this topic and what you've watched if anyone feels like they want to watch um chained heat two, it's 2.99 <laughs> on amazon oh that's a deal
1: <laughs> yeah that's that's amazing
3: uh you can email us at outwardpodcast@slate.com. at slate.com
1: okay it is now time for the way we end every show with our updates to the gay agenda how about you start us off christina
3: Okay, so I'm going to recommend another prison film, a gay prison film that actually was quite good. It's called Great Freedom. It is an Austrian film that was released last year. It's about a German guy, Hans, who was imprisoned in a concentration camp during World War II because he was Hmm. caught having sex with men, which was against the law. But after the camps were liberated and the war ended they actually kept him in a regular German prison to finish out the rest of his sentence. This was apparently something that actually happened to gay survivors of the Holocaust who also Mm. were not eligible for reparations for what they suffered in the concentration camps. But this was a a particularly interesting and, and, and weirdly sweet film to me because it follows him over the course of more than two decades. He keeps getting sent back to the prison because he keeps living his life and having sex with Uh, men and cruising in bathrooms uh, and having boyfriends, and that's his life, and he's not gonna stop just because he keeps getting sent back to prison. And although people who were sent to prison due to this law, they call it paragraph 175, are even marginalized within the prison, the fact that they were sent there for that reason also helps them find each other within the prison and he makes relationships they find ways you know even though the the men who were in prison for having sex with men were you know not allowed to be in the same cell or whatever they find ways to be together by getting punished further, mm-hmm. so they, you know, they if they don't show up for their night check or whatever, they get sent to this terrible outdoor cell to finish out the rest of the night. And so he and one of his partners in the film do that so that they can spend the night together. There's just a couple moments like that in the film that s- sort of underlines what we've been coming back to a lot in, in this episode, which is that even under situations of extreme torture and duress people find ways to make their lives happen and and find tenderness where they can i really think you guys should watch this film and i think our listeners uh would find it interesting too it's called great freedom it's streaming on mubi Mm m-u-b-i if you have that um or you can do a
2: free trial just to watch this film
1: yeah that sounds great jules what do you have
2: so i have a kind of recommendation that has been given a, a, a grade a certification from our friends over at GLAAD um, a recent <laughs> Glad award winner this is um, a a vice series uh, that kind of wrapped up at the end of last year it's called transnational um, you can hmm. find it on vice news's youtube channel it's just this incredible series um, about different trans communities around the entire world and I just oh, cool. you know I, I really feel like You know, it was brought back to my attention and I know some of the folks who worked on it who are just brilliant, you know, trans of color journalists and they they take you to tell you some stories around the world that like I'm sure, you know, most of us, unless we were, you know, living in those countries and a part of those communities wouldn't know about like Indonesia's only Quran school for trans Muslims or it takes us to a Detroit ballroom community um, yeah. mobilizing, you know, after the murder of one of their community members to the UK's trans healthcare crisis to the opening of a shelter for trans women in Mexico. Um, and just like, it's, it's really, you know, I, I think, again, it's like, what happens when you see you put trans people behind the camera, you know, in charge mm-hmm. of doing the work and, and actually trying to complicate you know how we're told stories, but actually go and listen to people, right? Whose lives are 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 really complicated and often, you know, kind of like some of the folks we've talked about today, taking place under you know terrible duress. But that, but that's not the story as much as it is their incredible potential to, you know, remake their circumstances. And I think that that's something that is really important. And I think that you know, for those of us who do live in the global north or in the US and sometimes, you know, I think experience political depression because we are frankly lied to all the time as if we were like living in a good situation mm. until, <laughs> you know, latest developments mm-hmm. started developing. It's like, you right. know, there's something kind of humbling to, to just sit with a range of stories from around the world and understand that you are part of a global struggle, which is not to say that we're the same as all these other people because we're not, um, but actually to be confronted by that difference. And but, you know, just overall, it's beautiful reporting. The visuals are crisp. The stories are powerful and interesting. Mm. And I, I'm so glad it won. me, moi I am so glad it won a glad. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I just thought I would take that as an opportunity to invite folks to go check it out in case you hadn't seen it when the series was airing um, last fall. So that's Transnational, uh, and you can find it from Vice News on their YouTube channel.
1: Oh, that sounds wonderful. Yeah, thank you. So, mine is a cute little book uh, that just came out this week. Um, it's called From Gay to Z, a Queer Compendium, and it is by Justin Elizabeth Sayre. Um, I've talked about Sayre on the show before. I'm a big fan of them, uh, and they've done work for a long time that's sort of about preserving and interpreting gay culture, or queer culture, whatever that means um, for new generations. And this book is um, an en- sort of an encyclopedia that came out of one of their cabaret shows from a few years ago. And it's arranged that way. Each letter has a selection of entries that sort of are anything from important figures and events in queer history to iconic films and books uh, and even like essential items like poppers Mm. and flags. Um, And there's, you know, short little encyclopedia-length entries. The other nice thing about it is it's not just things that were created by queer people, but also... You know, films, for example, that were that are very important to queer people, like in and under A, we have Anti-Mame, um, which mm. is an extremely important film for me as a gay boy, um, and and there's other entries like that. I don't know if we do Pride gifts, <laughs> but um, <laughs> if we did, this might be a nice one um, because it's it's really uh, beautifully written, very funny, I think, pretty well researched, and um, really you know just covers all kinds of interesting. Uh, people and events and things that you, you might not know about. So it's called um, From Gay to Z, A Queer Compendium.
3: I love the idea of a pride gift.
2: <laughs> yeah. I don't know if we want to yeah. like you know make it more right, commercial, like, but maybe, maybe we Hallmark do. Don't let Hallmark know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We love a good compendium. It's a great form. <laughs> yeah. Underutilized. Mm-hmm. Well, that is all we have time for this month, but please send us feedback and topic ideas or perhaps a voice memo of your own to... Outward podcast at slate.com or via Facebook or Twitter. We are at slate outward. June Thomas is our producer and the cultural pillar of our queer village. If you like (laughs) Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app, tell your friends about it and rate and review the show so that others can find it. Outward will be back in your feeds for pride month on June 22nd. Bye, Christina. Bye, Brian. Bye. Bye. Stay gay.
0: With the Lucky Land slot, you can get lucky just about anywhere.